if you get on a call with a prospective buyer and you say, no, 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 we're great, man. Our retention is fantastic. We're like 71, 72%. People are going to say, well, you guys, Christian doesn't know anything about how his business compares to his competitors, right? But then when we dug in further, here's what we realized. Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian Diaz podcast. I'm your host, Christian Diaz. This next guest, I am very excited about having him on. He works with in the M&A advisory space, as well as helping you know companies build out the right foundation to for proper valuation and prop, uh, buying and selling kind of space. We're going to be very excited about it because he really focuses on companies that are about a million to four million dollar EBITDA, which ranges about eight million to twenty five million dollar size on the top line. Now he's been in the twenty. He's been 20 years investment banker, business advisory, especially for founders and CEO. This man has helped dozens of founders, dozens, create evolutionary transactions that create current liquidity and a much more significant upside with less personal risk. He is now the CEO and founder of an M&A advisor, Potomac Business Capital, my friend, Todd Tasky. How are you doing today, Todd? Christian, super happy to be here, man. I'm excited to talk with you. Well, man, I'm looking forward to this because, you know, first of all, you hit the 2023 and, you know, Q4, like just right out of the gate, rock and roll. We were talking offline. You were just able to close some deals. You're able to rock and roll, kick butt, rock and roll. And one of the biggest things I'm noticing, Todd, is, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, uh, foundation that's going on right now. And, you know, Todd, what got you first? Let's start about your journey. What got you into the M&A space and that, that love for this industry? You know, I, um, I spent my first 20 years as a financial advisor. Um, we built a small, you know, independent financial planning firm. We sold it to a group that eventually was acquired by Goldman Sachs. That was in 2005-ish. And kind of through a, a different couple of different circumstances, wound up helping one client and another client uh, do, transac- do a transaction with their business and have kind of continued doing it you know from there and since then you know and let me ask you this because you've been in it for 20 years and do you feel like this has do you feel like there because of technology and where it's going and revolutionary kind of aspects do you feel like there has it scale? Has it gone up to the right where a lot of people have seen bigger valuations? Uh, there's a lot more buyers and sellers out there in the market. There's a lot of supply and demand. There's a lot of acquisition going on or, you know, from the 20 years that you've been in this, this space. I think the real driver to that, it's a very good point, has been private equity. And private equity, especially in the size transactions we deal with in that one to four or five million of EBITDA, Private equity is a real builder of businesses. So oftentimes in many of these transactions you see over my shoulder, we're either directly with private equity or we're acquired by a private equity backed company. And you know, one example that is a great one is our friends at Social SEO. We did a transaction for them you know, three years ago and they were about $2 million of EBITDA back then. And private equity came in. They are they'll finish 2022 at about 17 million of EBITDA. So from two million to 17 million in a three-year period of time, which is tremendous. Part of that is because they were able to do acquisition and acquire very specific pieces to you know the mosaic of services that they're providing to clients. And then they were also able to build an infrastructure that would support a business of that size. And it's hard to do as an entrepreneur that's bootstrapped because you, you tend to just you know, grow incrementally 10 or 15 or 20% a year. And that's a longer road. So, so the ability for private equity, which used to be just very large transactions you'd read about in the Wall Street Journal, have now come down to companies that are in the size range that we've been talking about. Do you feel like there are more, you know, because we all know the stats, you know, 90% of businesses in the VC world don't even get funded. And out of those that actually, you know, you know, do something, majority of them, you know, run out of capital, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so those that are looking at, you know, exiting at some point, you know, they've, they've gone through the ups and downs of it. Todd, are you seeing more, you know, like just getting a heartbeat of the industry? Are you seeing more companies now selling because we're seeing kind of the, 
you know, uh, generational wealth kind of transferring from, you know, that the baby boomer, uh, they, they're looking to exit, they're looking to kind of, you know, get into that next level of retirement. And, you know, obviously got that millennial and, and you know, the, the Gen Z, etc. Um, are you seeing that? Is that part of the reason why we're seeing such massive, you know, um, movement in this industry? You know, people talk about that a lot, because a lot of business owners are getting old and going to try to do something with their business. A lot of business owners are job owners, right? They own a job. They don't own a business. And if you take that person out of the job, there's nothing left to do. So, so that's one thing. Um, in, in the space that we serve most, which are people in, in the digital space, digital transformation, digital marketing, uh, managed services, things of that nature, there is a, a, a dynamic shift into that space. And, and I think that shift of having more aspects of any business digitized from a marketing standpoint to a business operation standpoint is what's driving a lot of the transactions that we work on. Now, I want to get right into, because, you know, a lot of these next questions are going to be very contextual. And Todd, I know with your experience in this industry, I know you have um, worked with so many deals with, you know, large different scale companies to all sorts of different things, you know, all along the spectrum. And I want to, Todd, I want to ask in regards to like negotiation. Okay. Help me understand how your company takes uh, someone that's looking to sell their company and find the right buyer. Because I think your, your system is actually very unorthodox in a good way. And I'd love for you to share kind of your approach uh, and your thesis in regards to uh, finding the right buyer mm -hmm. for that seller. So to take a couple steps back, the way we view the world, there's two types of transaction. There is the exit transaction, right? I've been doing this for 25 or 30 years or whatever. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do anything anymore. So sell the company, get me as much as you can, and I'm going to go do something else. And we do, you know, 15%, 20% of the deals we do would fall into that category. The other category is not an exit transaction. It's an evolutionary transaction. And these are for guys and women that are growing a really nice business. They're doing two or three or four million of EBITDA, right? So they are clearly successful. And the question for them becomes, what is the best path forward for me, our business, and my people? And oftentimes, that will be either partnering with private equity so that they can accelerate their growth in the ways that they want to and implement their vision, or to partner with somebody that's already in partnership with private equity and they're executing on their vision, right? And so, so those are the type of transactions that we do. And those things very typically mean that they will get, our clients will get multi-million dollars of cash at close. They will get a significant chunk of equity and they may get some level of earnout paid to them over the next year or two. And it's those combinations of things that typically make up a transaction. How much would you say when you go to that negotiation deal, how much would you say is like really just understanding like, to make sure that there's a win-win situation because that's how you guys kind of operate. How much emphasis do you put on into negotiation, right? Finding the, the, the way to negotiate this, way to have this conversation because sometimes I think you've probably been in the situation where the, that, that cycle to close, maybe nine, 10 months, depending upon how fast they move, legal, et cetera. And then as well as when you get to that finish line, sometimes it doesn't actually close. And so mm -hmm. it's like, you know, very unlikely but again, you know, definitely going through all that work, but I'd love to help me understand and to ensure that the success rate is really high. Yeah. Um, you know, how much emphasis do you put on negotiation? Yeah. So negotiation obviously is key and critical, right? And you, we don't, I don't believe people do win in a win-win negotiation when you sit around the table to negotiate a deal, right? We will negotiate to get a great result the very first time we meet somebody. Me meaning if we're in a process, I'll give you one example. So we have a really nice digital marketing firm that we're working with now. They're right about 3 million of EBITDA. 
we did a bunch of outreach. We, we know a lot of the, the players and interested buyers. And we have four of them coming to town next week and the week after. And those will be half-day management meetings. We've already got some indication of interest. We've already had management calls. We've done all that. The reason why we will be successful in the negotiation is because we've created a market. It is the market that will drive a successful negotiation because from going through this process, the market will tell us the right value for this business. It will tell us that in a way that my client, the seller, we always represent the seller. My client will understand the market has spoken. And this is what it is. Our job is then when we're done with these management meetings, we'll have four offers and we'll rank the companies first in terms of who would we like to be in business with for the next four or five years. And then we'll rank their economics, the deal, the value, cash at close, equity, and the rest. And my job will try to be to get the group that my client wants to work with to also be the highest economic value as well. And when I do that and I go to that buyer, Christian, I'm not saying, hey, we need you to do this and you've got to, we say, listen, here's what we heard from the market. And here's where you're a little bit lower than the rest of the market is. If you can meet the market dynamics, my client would like to be in business with you. That's a pretty compelling conversation to have with a buyer because the, again the market has spoken now there might be economic realities that they disagree with or they don't like or they don't want to stretch to get there maybe that one group likes them so much they're willing to go a little bit above market also that's fine but it's going through that process is the reason why we get the kind of results that we do because i think where a lot of people get in trouble on deals is that we have one buyer and I say, Christian, listen, here's what the guy wants to hear. Let's not talk about the truth for you right now. Let's just get a deal closed. You got to tell them this when we meet, you've got to tell them you'll, you'll stay longer. You'll sell more, you'll whatever it might be. And that always causes problems post-close. So if we can create an environment where all you have to do is tell these people, here's what I really want to do and what I really want to accomplish. Here's really how I see the next several years. We'll pick a buyer from that. And you can be who you are in a better environment. All of your team will be in a bigger environment and your best people will rise to the top of a larger environment. It's good for everybody. Well, I love the way you think about this, because instead of sitting there and giving that buyer what they want and like, hey, we got to just say we got to you know jump to these hoops. It's more of like, hey, be what you want to be that seller. And then we'll find a buyer that aligns with that. And then as well as making and I love your approach as well. It's the market. It's not the seller that wants X, Y, Z. It's not the buyer that's wanting to bring it down to X, Y, Z. It's like, hey, this is what the data is showing. This is what the market is explaining. And then we're able to unpack that. And then it's be able to, again, it's not like, hey, he said, she said. It's more of like, hey, this is what the market is approaching. This is with, with this data. And then obviously then you have that conversation. I want to kind of unpack this a little bit further, Todd, in regards to, um, I had a, a friend of mine and I thought this so, so interesting. He said, I want this valuation, but I also, I'm looking to retire and I, I want it to the business where I actually have some income you know, coming from it. So he's like, well, what I can do is I can actually sell it to you, seller financing, and so you've taken a loan out. The interest rates are obviously increased and I can give you a better interest rate, maybe 2% compared to obviously what prime is right now. And, you know, now all of a sudden he's like, well, now it's a win-win situation. The buyer, the, the price of the actual business was a little bit higher. However, though, when you include the interest, it was actually a lot cheaper compared to what it would have been. So I just thought that was really a very, and again, that's why I love, that's why I love real estate. That's why I love a lot of this stuff because it's so contextual and it's just a lot, I mean, it's just a matter of your creativity. So Todd, I'd love to just unpack maybe your most creative experience. You don't have to say the numbers or the, the company, et cetera, but I'd love for you to just maybe, you know, share with, with, you know, your most creative deal that you've kind of, you know, got into and got it across the, the finish line. Yeah. The, um, the most, you know, it's interesting. There are people that, understand and they use this language of a roll up 
right? A roll-up strategy. We're going to buy a bunch of marketing firms and roll them up and they'll be bigger. And typically in my space, 2 million of EBITDA trades at one multiple, over five, over 10, over 20. So yeah, if you smear a whole bunch of companies together that do a similar thing and you get over 10 million of EBITDA, everybody can theoretically win at that. It is super, super hard to execute on that strategy. What we see with the most successful deals, right? And in the digital marketing space, as an example, there's companies like Tenuity and W Promote and Power Digital and you know groups like this, Bounteous, some others that have sold at 20, 22 times EBITDA, big numbers, right? And they've done that because they have not done a roll-up strategy, but they've created an arc of services. So if you think of a, a performance marketing or a digital marketing firm, they do paid media, pay-per-click, right? Google ads. They do earned, right? Which is SEO. They do social, right? TikTok, Facebook, the rest, both paid and earned. They do email marketing. They provide content. They And so... Now they become a one-stop shop, if you will. And so putting together those things allows for cross-sell opportunity, allows for a lot of different pieces. So from that perspective, we just closed a deal uh, at the end of December, December 30th, and our client does direct-to-consumer marketing, and they use first-party data from those companies, larger direct-to-consumer brands. And they use that first party data to make their marketing spend on Facebook and Google and the rest much more efficient. There's a, a the buyer and the deal, they haven't announced it yet, but they're, the buyer's a, a sizable firm out in California. They didn't have that capability set. And they said, geez, we got hundreds of clients that we could probably take this to. And now if we could plug these guys in, that would be fantastic. Right. And, and then for my guys, not only did they get several million of cash at close, they also have equity in the bigger company. They also now have all these fish in the barrel. And for the first time ever, that group has a sales team of like 11 people. My guys had one before. One of the three founders was the sales guy. Right. So they're, they're in an environment where they've gotten cash. They've got equity upside. They've got a management team. They don't have to do HR anymore. They don't have to do finance anymore. They can focus on their highest and best use. And for a lot of entrepreneurs that we work with, they say, geez, that's how great it was when we got started. That's when I really loved this business. Now I'm dealing with all the other nonsense about the business, you know? So it, it's the, the creative part oftentimes is just in finding the, the place where it fits in like that. And that's why most of the transactions we do have turned out so well, because that fit is so good. Well, and I think this is, and again, it comes back down to the your unorthodox approach, which I appreciate because you say, hey, you know, instead of trying to fit a, a circle into a, a square or vice versa approach, it's like, hey, let's find that circle uh, that aligns with, of course, that individual, what they want, their the goals, their dreams, whatever that looks like. And then you have such a big Rolodex in the network that you're able to find those buyers. Now, um, and, and let's talk a little bit about more about the, the deal flow a little bit. Um, you know, the, when you're working through this deal flow a little bit, you can identify when you find that alignment, right? Let's assume you just mentioned that, right? The buyer and the seller. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. You have that conversation, that dialogue. Um, what are the, for the seller, because a lot of our listeners are in a situation where at some point they're looking to exit, right? They want to build a foundation, they're looking to exit. And during this process, this is sometimes first founders where they've never gone through this process, what that looks like, the back and forth, the conversation. What do you think they should be aware of or questions that they should be asking or information that they should be prepared to give um, during this during this process? You know, that's, it's a great question. So um, first of all, is the financials to your business? When, when you're going to sell your company, you will meet people that will know and understand the economics and the metrics of your business better than you will. 
the economics and the metrics better than you will within a week, within two days, because that's the way their, their mind thinks and the way that they break things down. And um, so that part's fascinating. And I'll tell you this. So again, part of the unorthodox style, we'll reach out to people a lot. And we've got two of these deals right now. And just say, listen, man, I, I know that there's buyers that would really love your business. And when I say buyers, I don't mean you sell and then you leave. I mean, you partner up with these guys and you become part of this overall great solution. And of course, it's always meant with a, a bit of cynicism that it sounds like a sales pitch. So what we oftentimes will do is, is we'll tell clients, let's do this. Because I offer the greatest consulting that you can ever get. Because we will talk to, let's call it five groups. Five groups that know your space, that have a lot of money, that don't care about your feelings. And they will say, Christian, listen, this is great, but we don't like that you do this. You didn't do enough of that, and you do too much of the other thing. That's one man's opinion. But if we have five or six of these conversations, and you hear the same two or three things repetitively over and over again, since you're going to work really hard on your business anyways, why don't you work on fixing those two or three things that will maximize the value of your business, right? And if you can interview real buyers, that will be very honest with you about what they like and don't like. It's, I mean, it's, they literally lay it out for you on a platter. So if, if you, and now that means you should be talking to buyers probably a couple of years before you even may even want to sell your business. And so, you know, that, it, and that's a time, energy and effort to do it. But I, I think it's typically very well placed effort. So let's let's walk this walk this a little bit further because I, I'm a big believer in this. And however, though, to ensure that that buyer is a serious buyer, and as a seller, you're like, okay, I'm I am I am willing to adapt, adjust a few things in my business to align with what you guys are looking for, so that it becomes this beautiful alignment, and you guys have that nice transaction. However, though, you don't want one of those buyers that just say, we want this and all these hurdles. And all of a sudden you walk through all these hurdles and it's diluting and diverting your attention. And the reality is that buyer never actually facilitates a buying your, your company. So you right. want to make sure that there is that, that right approach. So what maybe legal things, maybe, maybe information, ensuring that, hey, you know what? Okay, uh, we do have you know, certain documents associated like, hey, if I do this, then there is this, there's this, yeah. this, this so, uh, ideal conversion. Yeah, so I'll answer that in two ways. Number one, so last year we worked with this company, a, a Facebook agency, really good business, and their retention. So in, in the digital marketing space, two key metrics, how much of your revenue is recurring revenue, contractually recurring revenue, and what's your retention rate on that revenue? So I had this one client, and he's about 70% retention on revenue. That's not great. Right. And this is one point that I'll, I'll make. If you get on a call and it's not great, 70 percent is not great. If you get on a call with a prospective buyer and you say, no, 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 we're great, man. Our retention is fantastic. We're like 71, 72 percent. People are going to say, well, you guys, Christian doesn't know anything about how his business compares to his competitors. Right. But then when we dug in further, here's what we realized. These guys attracted a lot of inbound demand for their service. And so what they did is they said, we have a four month trial period. And the, and the customer was very slightly, but they were profitable over a four month period of time. So our guy said, and my guys were like 10 or 11 million of revenue, right? And my guy said, listen, we'll, we'll bring these people in. It's the way we operate our business. They're profitable. That's how we'll do it. And so we were getting pushback from a lot of people in the market, like, yeah, we don't like the retention's not that important or it's not that good. So we're not interested. When we pulled it apart and we put it into cohorts, right? So the four month co so if we got rid of everybody, so if you just measured retention from month five forward, their retention was 93%. So we changed our deck and said, hey, we're 93% retention. And we explained it to people up front so they didn't think we were messing around with them, right? Now, if, when you buy this company, if you don't like this marketing approach, get rid of the four people, the four-month trial. 
And our retention will probably remain around 93%. That's your decision to make, not ours, when you buy the business, but this is how we operate the company. So from that standpoint, that's what I mean by understanding the metrics and what they mean and what they teach you and how you learn and understand your business. I go through this with buyers all the time, stuff that they never thought about because they are looking at their business this way, not this way, right? And, and that perspective adds a lot of insight into the company. See, Todd, you mentioned something that's very, very powerful. And, and I appreciate bringing this up because it's like the way it is so contextual and someone outside doesn't see what you see. And so it's, it's like your job as a seller to create the story so that obviously, and, and really drum up the right story. So it obviously, you know, emphasizes the right points. And like you mentioned, if they just saw that on factual, you know, financials, okay, well, no, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and nixnay that one. And let's go to this other one. The reality, if you saw, you know, like you just mentioned, unpack that and you start realizing, oh, this is the actual story that it's actually happening. Now you have a little bit more context and you can better make a better decision because exactly. now you have all the data. And you know what else? Like and it's super helpful if you know who you are and who you serve. And one example, that deal on the end there is a company called Worth E-Commerce. And by the way, I didn't mention it, but we have a podcast called the Second Byte Podcast, secondbytepodcast.com. And you can listen to a lot of the, the actual owners of these business talk about the transaction that they did. Anyway, so Dean's early 30s, he, he has a business that does email marketing for e-commerce customers only, this nice little box, right? And they're a, a little bit below a million of EBITDA. And Dean wants to partner with private equity and grow a bigger business. And unfortunately, he's just too small for that. So he and I spoke, we had the kind of conversation like we had talked about, here's how we can be helpful. Anyways, one day I'm talking to the people at Smartbug, that's a HubSpot partner. And they said, here's how we're gonna dominate the world. We're going to have HubSpot, HubSpot expertise, Marketo, and Klaviyo. Klaviyo is an email marketing platform, to which I said, wait a sec, I got a Klaviyo guy. And this goes into the negotiation thing you were asking about before. They said, geez, we should uh, would love to talk to him. I said, here's the only problem, is that he's not ready to do a transaction right. I agree, he's perfect, perfect fit. He does not ready to do a transaction yet. How come? He wants his EBITDA to get above a million. He thinks he'll be there by the end of the year. I think we're talking in March or April. And then they said, oh, we can solve that. We're like, really? What would you do? We'll, we'll, if, we'll, we'll help him. And then if he gets to that number, we'll pay him the rest of the money at that point. I was like, Jesus, that's a fantastic idea. Do you think we could do something like that? Yeah, I think we could. Okay, but remember, we need this and this and that. So all of the stuff that I know is going to come up after LOI when we're negotiating documents, all that stuff, if you can bring it to the front and eliminate it then, it, it makes the negotiation part a breeze. Man, and, and let me ask you just on this side note and, and walk away from M&A. Todd, I have noticed because the way you thought about all that and the way you put all that together, that takes a different kind of brain because that is synergistic, that is collaborative, those are partnerships, those are joint ventures, and you're seeing how you know, you're putting a puzzle together. And I've noticed it takes a different kind of person because you're playing chess and you know, in that regard. Um, where did you learn that ability? Has that just always been something innate in the way you look at things? It's just creatively in a paradigm, or is that something that's a learned skill that you established? On, on the field, man, on the field, right? It's as if, if you're a football fan, they call it time in the pocket, right? So when you're a quarterback, the game slows down after some period of time. You can read the blitz. You know they're in cover two. You send the man in motion. You see how they react to that. You check down. You hit a complete a pass, right? You, you take what they give you, you know, that kind of stuff. So at the end of the day, it's about helping my client get the best result that they can get and where it is that they want to be. And I tell this one other story too. So we had, this is going back a few years. I had a client, wanted to do a transaction, hired us, we found, we got a couple great, we had one offer. 12 million in cash, 
three million in equity, all at close. No earnout, great buyer, let's go. My guy said, you know, I don't want to do that deal. I don't I didn't want to do that deal. And and by the way, to date, still probably the best deal. I I never I didn't get to close. My guy didn't want to close that because he wanted to do his own thing, which I, I do respect and appreciate. Fast forward on that story, though, the three million of equity, the group that he sold that to, which is a company out of California, they subsequently built and sold that business to a second private equity group. That three million would have been worth thirty five million dollars on top of the 12 he would have got up front. So almost a $50 million deal. Anyways, we're going to do what the client wants. So we found a really good private equity group. That private equity group, he, you know, Christian, he just wouldn't stop negotiating on. He wanted to be paid on his future EBITDA, which nobody in the space does. He wanted a higher multiple, didn't want to leave the right amount of working capital, didn't want to non-compete, on and on and on. And the group finally said, forget it, we're done. I said, wait a sec, don't be done. Let's look at a different company, which wound up being the people at Social SEO. For the deal that those guys got, probably a 40 to $50 million transaction as well. And my guy, who is still about the same size that he was three years ago, missed out on two 50-ish million dollar life-changing type of deals because he was focused right here without looking up to say, what's the bigger picture that I, that I can accomplish that I want to accomplish, right? And it's a little bit of a humility mixed in there somewhere, right? And so it's helpful when people think about where do I really want to go? And, you know, when people, and I hear this sometimes, I'm sure you do too, I know what my business is worth. Not really. The market knows what your business is worth. And if you ask the market, they will tell you. You might be right, you might be wrong. But you can't know until you ask the market. And, and I've had people say, well, I'm not going to sell it for that because it's worth much more. It's not. It's okay that you don't want to sell it. You don't want to sell it for whatever the reason is. But the reason cannot be it's worth more than the market says it is because it's not. My dad used to say, you can't fix or help stupid. You know, and I think that's a really good uh, situation. And, and let me ask you this, because I think this is, I appreciate you bringing this up here because, you know, here on this podcast, we understand we can get in our own way a lot of times, right? Whether it's scaling, whether it's building and maybe even financial, whatever it is. Right. And one of the biggest things I know that it comes down to human, our own human bias or human behavior, human psychology. So Todd, you have been in the markets. You've seen people like you just mentioned. You really brought some good examples where someone was so short-sighted that it's like, oh, I want you know an extra one, two percent multiple. When the reality is, you just missed out on a forty, fifty million dollar deal when you know they, they could have paid you whatever, right? So the reality is, you you're you're looking, you're bending down for pennies and you're missing the dollars that were flying over your head, right? Hundreds yeah. of dollars. And so, Todd, I want to kind of stop on this a little bit. And if you could maybe just emphasize to our audience and myself even, like certain, our own behaviors, our own biases that come into play and say, hey, you know what? Don't be prideful. Don't be too arrogant. And if Todd and his team bring up data and says, hey, this is what it's multiple, accept that because at the end of the day, you got to trust that Todd and his team, they know what they've, they've, they've done hundreds upon hundreds of transactions. So I'd love for you to just maybe share a little bit of your, your background and like certain things that you've seen people mess up. And you were mentioning just a few, but I'd love for you to just dive into that a little bit further for us. Yeah. So it's, uh, so first of all, I'm reading this book right now called Fooled by Randomness by uh, Nisam Talib. It's a dense, sh short book. Most people, most entrepreneurs that I know would never take the time to read it, but it's super instructive about, about how we make decisions and what our internal biases are and on and on from that standpoint. So if you want to, I would, I would give a, a shout out to, to that book. The tricky thing is this. We're talking about an important amount of money. We're talking about your life's work in some respects and, and how you view and think about that. So it is super important to have an advisor that you trust and think can interpret what the market tells you. And you have to have a belief in the market, right? 
Warren Buffett talks about this all the time in terms of the value of a stock. And Warren Buffett would tell you in, in what he calls the crazy uncle story. There's a, a, a stock. I know what it's worth. It's worth it in, in, as a value investor. It's worth a discounted cash flow of what that company will produce. And I know this. And my crazy uncle knows this, who I'm in business with. Some days he comes into the office super excited about everything that's going on, and he thinks it's worth more. On those days, sell him your company. Some days he'll come in because he got his ass kicked and it's not going well. And he's like, this company sucks. It's only worth X. Buy the business from him on those days, right? But we, nobody does that because we're, we're too emotional about the things that we've done and, and how much blood, sweat, and tears I put into it and, and on and on from that standpoint. So I don't diminish how difficult it is. I think it's helpful if people realize that uh, Tlaib was a trader on Wall Street. And he said, I was a very good trader. And my best skill was understanding my weaknesses and knowing that I wasn't that good. And so I leveraged that. And so for a lot of entrepreneurs, I mean, I've done, like you said, dozens and dozens of transactions. I've seen a lot of things. And for a lot of the clients we serve, they've done one or none transactions in their past. And so finding somebody that will help you interpret that and make sure you get the language right is a, you know, a critical part to having a successful outcome. A lot of times that's a banker, somebody like me. A lot of time, and there's always a lawyer involved. So your lawyer will play a significant role. But um, but that would be, I think, my my comments around that. Yeah, and I appreciate you mentioning that a little bit because it's it's good to you know, and I understand as well the seller. You know, it's like you're sitting there and you it's your baby, right? And I, I just uh, I remember you know that that interview with with uh, you know Elon Musk and talking about Tesla and the ups and downs of that whole ride and you know probably a lot of our listeners have been in the same situation where there was nothing in the bank, but you persevered and you got it through and now you're, you know, making money, you want to sell it. And, but it's like, man, I want to sell off a lot of it, you know? <laughs> so I understand, you know, and Todd, I want to talk a little bit about also when you're in this, this kind of elongated, um, what is the timeline that you like to see these things close? Cause you guys have got it down pretty, pretty to a science. Like, you know what the buyers are going to ask. You already get that from the seller. So then you can, you know, coordinate that and, and have that synergistic relationship. You already have a Rolodex of buyers that already know, like, and trust you. And you're looking for those sellers, having those conversations, et cetera. So that's one of the reasons why it's very optimal. But for those that are listening, that are looking to sell at some point, um, what, what is that timeline that they could expect? Yeah. So um, I'll put it this way. And I'll use this example of the deal that we're uh, working on now and a little bit of a wrinkle in there because we were working on it over the holidays but we reached out to something like 150 potential buyers uh, some of them are private equity some are backed by private equity some are strategics some of them get ruled out because they're about to close on something or they just closed on something and they can't do something else at the same time so just poor timing right those kind of things and so we did, I want to say from, and, and so when I say we reached out to them, we typically will send a one page teaser that says, here's the business. They, they, this is the services that they provide. Here's the rough geographic area. Here's the dynamics. Here's some of the high level financials. And if you want to get the SIM confidential information uh, memorandum, then fill out the NDA and send it back. And then we'll send you out the SIM or what's known as a deck. Our decks are usually 20, 25 pages. Um, talk at a high level about the business, some specifics about services provided and the rest. And then we'll interview those people and then we'll schedule usually a one hour call with the manager, with, with the owner, right, of the company so that they can each get a feel for, for one another. After we went through that round, we said to people, and we, and, and we try to bunch those into a two or three week period of time. And then when we were done, we reached out to that group and said, listen, we want an indication of interest. And remember, all of this is positioning for the right negotiation and getting my client in front of the right partner. 
So we said, we would like an indication of interest, which could be a letter or it could be an email and give me an idea on how you see value and how you would structure that value. Meaning if it's $20 million, will you do 14 million of cash at close and 6 million of equity? And that's right, that kind of thing. And then from that group, we're gonna invite four to come to DC for half day management meetings. And that's where we are right now. So we have next Thursday and Friday and the following Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, something like that. We'll have four and maybe a late fifth entrance into that. We'll spend a half a day. And that half a day is my guy saying, here's who we are. And asking a lot of questions because my guy's gonna roll forward two or three or $5 million of his money into this company. So he wants to make sure the fit is good. It's that dynamic, Christian, that forces both sides to be honest with one another about the outcome that we want to accomplish. And can we do this together, right? And so we'll go through that. Typically, when we get a letter of intent, it's typically three turns on a letter of intent. For whatever reason, the Lord decided it should be one week for each turn, right? You know, it takes about three weeks to get an LOI negotiated fully. That is critical time for a buyer because we have most of the leverage at this way, right? At this time. Once the LOI is done, so that say that takes about a month, standard quality of earnings, due diligence, and legal document negotiation takes about 60 days. So from the time of LOI to deal closes roughly 90 or 100 days, about three months. And the marketing of a deal is usually three to four-ish months, depending on how excited people are about the company. Sometimes it could take longer, but to your earlier point about technology allowing me to do a lot of outreach and a lot of outreach quickly, you know, if something goes pretty smoothly, it's probably going to be in that six to eight month time zone, time frame. And super critical that during those six, eight, nine months, you are continuing to execute on the business. Revenues can't fall. Profitability can't fall. You can't lose big customers. Man, you got to be hitting to the, and, and which brings up my last point. Entrepreneurs want to kind of think about selling at the peak. If you think about what we just talked about, I need you to start selling nine months before the peak. And if you're going to have an earnout component that and you want to get all that earnout, should be like a year and nine months before the peak. And you can just never project that, right? Every I've never had a conversation with an entrepreneur that said, let me tell you something, 22 is fantastic for us. And we are excited about 23. After 23, we'll probably go over a cliff and that's it. Never has happened. It's always bigger and better. We're doing more stuff. It's all exciting. We're hiring more salespeople. We got new territory. We got another product, whatever it is. And that's the blind spot of an entrepreneur. See, and that's, that's interesting. And I appreciate bringing that up, kind of just the, the, the timeline and the proper timeline. In fact, I found it very interesting. When I sold my business, I, you know, I look back at hindsight and I realized there's a lot of things that I could have done differently. And I know like internally in-house, I should have, you know, added like a better financials. I should have a better, you know, SOPs and operating systems and blah, 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 and all that fun stuff. But, you know, there's a whole list of things. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on because you're able to share that, but also explain, hey, what this looks like and then also have the right mindset. So when you are in these talks, you don't want to be sitting there like, oh, crap, we just lost a huge client. We don't, you know, you, you want to make sure, hey, you're scaling, you're rocking and rolling, you're acquiring more. And you want to, you know, it's like the Olympics handoff, you know, in, in a you know, right. kind of a handoff race, you know, you and want to, to hand your, this off very effectively. Right. And to your point, you're a $10 million business. I know there's some systems you have and some systems you don't. If we understand your weaknesses, when I'm talking to the buyer, I can say, let me tell you something else. The, from an internal perspective and a retention, like we sold this great company here, Titan Growth, we did a few years ago. Their retention was not good at all. And we led with that. I said, let me tell you something about these guys. Their retention is below, well below market, which is fantastic news for you for two reasons. Number one, the price is according. Number two, do you know one of the easiest things to fix is retention? You hire two 
customer success managers that will cost you 120, 150 grand. And your retention will go from the high 60s to 90% within a year. It's low hanging. It's an unbelievable opportunity. And so if you lead in with that, then when we do the management meetings, they're like, oh, geez, man, you're only 68% retention. Like, yeah, it doesn't even come up, right? We've covered it. So Todd, I, I love this approach because you reframe it, but also you don't try to hide the numbers. Like if it is, then it's just a matter of reframing that to you know, say, hey, it's actually a win-win. You see the opportunity here and you're right. selling it. I love that, I love that approach. I say this uh, to- I wanna ask, and the, go ahead. I was just, please, gonna, I was go just go gonna add, I say it to buyers all the time. Like, wow, geez, his financials aren't, aren't like this and this. I'm like, I, I understand. He's an $8 million business. They don't do it like that, right? Well, he should be adjusting his deferred revenue every month for, I, I understand he should, nobody under 20 million does that when he has a cfo i'm sure the cfo will do it he just doesn't have one we don't apologize for stuff and and you see and you 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 reframe it to an opportunity and say you see this as a massive you know opportunity etc and i think that's awesome todd i want to ask about like a smooth transaction transition from buyers uh from seller to buyer okay and i've seen some individuals where they they're on for the next 24 months just to ensure that there is a proper smooth transition i've had you know different where they're on the board depending upon how large that you know private equity or that larger company is that acquired that smaller company um what what do you anticipate or like share with some of your sellers and say, hey, anticipate that we'll probably ask for maybe eight, 12, 14 months of, a, you know, maybe you on as a leadership or a consulting mm -hmm. role or, you know, what, what are you seeing in the market right now, Todd? Yeah, so there, there's a couple of things. Again, with most of our deals, our guys want to stay on board, right? We sold a company at the end of last year where my client was 72 years old. He wanted to retire and be done. He spent 90 days there and that was it. And he left. He, I, I don't even think he stayed the 90 days because, you know, they prepared well enough and we've had a good buyer that that didn't need him. So the other thing, and, and this comes up a lot, Christian, because I hear this nonsense from people all the time. Yeah, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I really can't work for anybody else. To which I often remind guys, if I'm one of your top five clients and I call you Thursday afternoon at 445, you're not going to your kid's basketball game. That's it. He, you missed, right? You work for me, man. You work for all your employees, all your customers, and everybody listening knows this, right? This is the grind of being an entrepreneur. When you sell your business, I don't need Christian to fill out TPS reports and work from nine to five. What I need Christian to do is whatever he's been doing to produce the business he's got. If he, does, he can do part of it in Florida and part of it here in, in Chicago, terrific. That's fine by me, right? Life will be a little bit different, typically around reporting, financial reporting, HR, and some internal systems. You shouldn't be doing that stuff anyways. So these are also the kind of candid conversations you want to have with the potential buyer. What's it going to look like afterwards? And if it's going to look like I'm sitting on a beach retired full-time, then we our objective is to make the earnout period or the period you have to stay as short as possible. And if you're negotiating one-on-one -on -one and that guy wants you to be there for two years, I don't know what we're going to do. If that guy wants you to be there for two years and I say, listen, the other four people interested in this business are saying nine to 12 months, you know what he's going to do? He's going to back down pretty quickly and say, yeah, you know, we could probably figure out 12 months. When you see you know, them exiting, and I know this is so contextual, right? You know, the seller, and you can, you can negotiate the deal however you want, whether that's some cash, whether that's equity of the larger company, the buyer. Um, I've seen some where they've, you know, because I mean, these, these IPO companies, they're looking to acquire these smaller runs. And I know this may not be contextual with this situation, but I just want to bring this up a little bit. Do you find some founders that are looking to sell their company? Do you, do you see them kind of gravitate more toward like, Hey, I want to, I want to own a large portion of this equity. So you guys go ahead and buy it, but I want maybe 20% in equity of whatever that is. We that's, did you know, this, um, um, last March, we did center for sales strategy out of Dallas, Texas. My guy kept 40 plus percent of the company. We did this deal in front demand drive. They have over 45% equity in the company. These guys are, are, they have a partner, man, almost an equal partner in private equity. 
these guys are excited about building something much bigger and having a much bigger exit than what they could have accomplished on their own. They love the idea that they've got a couple extra zeros in their bank account now because it changes their personal risk tolerance. But they're in it for another, I don't know, four, five, eight, 10 years. And maybe one of the great interviews on our podcast was Grayson LaFrance. He built a company from 6 million of EBITDA to 30 million of EBITDA in four years with a private equity group. They just sold it to another private equity group. He rolled forward another big bunch. He's got other big plans for all you know, the things that he wants to do with his business, with his people, with the companies they've acquired. And it's all very exciting. So when people start to, to think about this, and these are the people we serve a lot, Christian, are guys that are in their you know, late 30s or 40 to somewhere in their 50s that as opposed to selling, taking a bunch of money and trying to go do something else, they sell, get a bunch of money and keep doing the same thing, but now at a different level with different partners. Well, and I think it's interesting because I, I don't think a lot of individuals see this as an opportunity to scale that, that way, right? Where they can partner with someone like, hey, I'm willing to give up some equity. Definitely when you have something cash flowing, instead of taking all your chips off, you know, say, hey, you know, I still want to keep 40%. And I love that approach. Are you seeing, let me ask you, because you're on the forefront of this, do most people come to you and they're like, hey, I want to totally take, you know, sell this and that's kind of their mindset? Or are they kind of thinking like, hey, you know what? Or like, what's the percentage would you say? Or like, hey, 90% are like, hey, I'm looking to sell, exit totally, I'm retiring, go live in the Bahamas. And maybe 10% are looking like, hey, I want to sell 40%. And I know that I want to find a strategic partner that can partner with me to help me take this to, you know, like you mentioned, 30 million EBITDA, et cetera. Yeah, more and more uh, owners and founders are realizing they have that opportunity. They have an opportunity to not, if you think about it, not wait to the end when I just sell it and retire. But somewhere in the middle there, I can get a bunch of li liquidity. I can then maybe even consider doing other acquisitions, buying other things that we need. And I can do that with people that know how to do due diligence, that know how to apply leverage and debt, that have relationships for those things. And again, you can listen to a lot of these guys on, on our podcast, but it's a whole nother world. And what those guys need, private equity and, and investors, is that they need really good operators. Somebody that knows the, you know, the, the waste removal business, the HVAC business, the digital marketing business, the, the, market, the technology service business, whatever it is, right? If we find a good operator there and we can support him, right, and partner with him, man, we can do all sorts of things. And that's the stuff that becomes really exciting. Yeah, I think that's a good way to approach that. That's what I was wondering. Like, I don't think... Uh, a lot of individuals I talk to, a lot of times when they're talking to an M&A advisor, yeah, they're looking to normally sell. And uh, I just really appreciate that kind of explaining that. Uh, Todd, I really appreciate you being on here, man, unpacking this at a very deep level and just going through a lot of case studies. Uh, for those that are wanting to learn a little bit more about what you got going on, I know you got an incredible podcast, the Second Bite Podcast. How else can they reach out to you and be part of what you got going on, man? Yeah, the you know, you can go to PotomacBusinessCapital.com, find us there. Todd Tasky, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find that way. Um, and if we can be helpful, we'd certainly welcome the opportunity to, you know, as you can tell, uh, Christian, we could probably spend another hour or two on this topic. So if there's uh, interest and an opportunity to in the future, you let me know and we'll spend another hour chatting about the stuff that I love to do. Awesome, guys. Those links are in the description below. So make sure you stop what you're doing and literally, uh, you know, engage with what he's got going on. Again, that second bite podcast down there is LinkedIn, his, his social media, and his website. Uh, Todd, I really appreciate you being on here again. That's big time. And uh, guys, that is Journey with Christian Evans podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can. <laughs>